Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your infallible word. It is without error. We thank you that it is also authoritative. It rules over us and not we over it. We thank you that your word is sufficient. It is enough for us to know you and to know how to live to please you. We thank you that it's alive. We thank you that your word, O oh Lord, speaks to our hearts. Lord, examines our thoughts and our intents. And Lord, we praise you that it gives life. Give life this morning by your word, we pray. Life to your people, life to all who have assembled. Cause your word, O oh Lord, to accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need a copy of God's Word, raise your hand this morning, and the, one of the ushers will bring you a Bible to use as we um, go through God's Word this morning. Just raise your hand and keep it up if you need a copy of God's Word. If not, we will be uh, studying this morning, as our brother read so wonderfully, Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20. might be helpful just to give a word of reminder about this book. The main theme of this book is holiness. God is speaking to his people, Israel, instructing them to be holy just as he is holy. And it might be helpful to remember the historical context. Israel had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Moses has just delivered them from that enslavement. And the book of Exodus is like part one to Leviticus part two. So Leviticus takes up in chapter 1, verse 1, right where the book of Exodus ends, and it's thought to have been given to Israel over the course of a little over a month. So, so get the picture. God has delivered his people from slavery. He has met with them. They have seen his glory. And now he was giving them his law and teaching them to be holy as he is holy. You could read the book of Leviticus like a blueprint for God building these freely, uh, these recently freed enslaved people into a brand new and holy nation. And I want to suggest to you that in Leviticus chapter 18 and 20, God, uh, God's blueprint sort of has three parts to it. This is my outline for our time this morning, God's word. If you're a note-taking type, uh, you might write these down. He does three things to define Israel so that they might be the holy nation, the holy people that he wants them to be. Number one, God defines Israel's identity. He defines their identity. He gives them an identity in chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. Number two, God defines Israel's families. He defines for them the proper functioning of family and of sexuality among his holy people. You see that in chapter 18, verse 6 down to 23. And then number three, God defines Israel's accountability. He defines their accountability. We're going to see that from verse 24 of chapter 18 and pretty much all of chapter 20. And as we look at these three chapters, it's really clear, isn't it, that, that God judges our family and our sex lives. That as we just sang a moment ago, our bodies belong to God. Our bodies belong to God. Our bodies belong to God. Soul and body belongs to God. 
And that has a lot to do with our practice of holiness. So let's take that first point. God defines Israel's identity. You see that in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So the first thing God does when he sets out to build a nation is to give them a common identity. Now, he first has to do that with Moses. You see that there in verse 1, and the Lord spoke through Moses. We have been reading that at the beginning of almost every chapter. And the Lord spoke through Moses, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. So this might be a good time for us to remind ourselves of who Moses was. Moses, of course, was a Jewish man born during a time of great persecution in Egypt. His people, Israel, were enslaved in Egypt. And his parents recognized at his birth that he was a special child. And so they hid him from Pharaoh and Pharaoh's uh, edict that killed all the little children. She hid him actually in the Nile, on the the sort of uh, banks of the Nile. And who should find him in God's providence but Pharaoh's daughter? And Pharaoh's daughter raises Moses in Pharaoh's household as, as her own child. So here's the thing. Moses grew up with incredible privilege. He grew up with incredible opportunity, even though he was a member of an oppressed group. Now, what did Moses do with that, though? First, he tried to leverage that privilege while inside Pharaoh's house, speaking on behalf of his people. And when that didn't work, he laid down that privilege so that he could identify with his people and God's people. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 26. That great chapter there on faith, and it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What a remarkable statement. If Moses was going to be God's man, used to make Israel into God's people, then Moses would have to lay down comfort. He would have to lay down worldly wealth. He would have to lay down the status that comes from being known as Pharaoh's daughter. He'd have to lay it all down, and he'd have to lay down pleasure. Notice in Hebrews in order to be mistreated with the people of God. He will exchange privilege for problems to do God's work. Beloved, I think it's important for us to remember as we look at Moses that if we're going to be building ARC into the people of God here in our community in Southeast, a number of us, not necessarily all of us, but a number of us will have to make the same decisions that Moses made. We will have to trade our privilege for some problems so we can identify with God's work in this neighborhood. Some of us will have to decide that the reproach of Christ is greater wealth than all the treasures 
in this here American Egypt. None of the nation building of Israel happens without Moses acting in faith by joining his people in suffering and hardship. So what was God doing with Moses? Well, he was giving Moses an identity too, wasn't he? Before Moses could lead the people to identify with God, Moses himself had to learn to identify with God and the people. He was molding his man for his mission. And so this is who he speaks to in verse 1. God spoke to Moses saying, but now notice how God gives Israel an identity defined by three things. Number one, their identity would be defined by their relationship with God. You see that in verse 2? He says there, I am the Lord your God. In fact, he says that three times in those five verses. I am the Lord your God. Israel had a covenant relationship with God that no other nation had. Only Israel could say God was their God because God had only given himself to Israel, had only chosen Israel to be his people. And God chose them to define them and to keep them humble. So keep your finger here in Leviticus 18 and turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 to 8 where God speaks to them about being his people. Speaks to them about choosing them and speaks to them in a way that is to keep them humble. He says in verse 6, For you are a, a people holy to the Lord your God. You are separated, consecrated. You are mine. You are holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Notice verse 7. Here's the humility. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. He's like saying, I didn't choose you because you were significant. I didn't choose you because you were dope like that. You, you were a little people among all the people of no significance. But notice verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I like this, verse 7. Not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you. Verse 8, it is because the Lord loves you. You see what he's saying to Israel? I love you because I love you. I don't love you because you did something. I don't love you because you're great. I don't love you because you're some military power. I don't love you because you've got, you know, a high GDP. I, I love you because I love you. Which is precisely what God says to us in Christ. I, I saved you. I rescued you, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. I made you my own people, ARC. I made you my own people, church. I made you my own people, Christian, not because you were great, but because I loved you. I love you because I love you. It's the most fundamental thing about our identity. That God is our God and we are his people and that is a relationship defined by his love. He loves you, beloved. He'll never stop loving you. 
We find these great promises in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, like nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not famine, not sword, not persecution, nothing will be able to separate you, Christian, from your God who loves you, who loved you before the world began, will love you to the end of this world, will love you for all of eternity. Build our identity on that. And so he first pulls him out and says, listen, you need to know who you are. You're mine. Secondly, now notice, he gives Israel an identity by defining not just their relationship to him, but now defining also their relationship to the other nations. He separates them from the other nations. So I'm back in, back in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 3, and this is what we read. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statues. So now God is defining them as a distinct and separate people from the other nations and peoples and cultures that they have some interaction with. So... At no time and in no way were the cultures and ways of pagan people to define the culture and ways of holy Israel. In other words, their identity was not going to be defined either by the cultures they had gone through in Egypt or the culture they were going to in Canaan. They were not bound by their past and they were not entirely defined by their future. God was freeing them to be their own selves distinct from all the other nations. They would be separate unto him. They were going to be something brand new in the world, called out and separate from the world. And Christian, that's us too because of Christ. We who were no people have become now a new people. We who were in the world have now been rescued from the world that we might belong entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ. We were outside the covenants of promise, but Christ has now brought us into relationship with God. And we have become a new and holy people. Ephesians 2 calls us a new humanity, distinct, separate from the world. That's essential to our identity. It's essential to our holiness. This means, beloved, at least, at least this means that we are not primarily defined by our ethnic and cultural past, and we are not defined by the cultural moment we live in. We're not defined by the world. That's not where we get our cultural orientation from. So it's great that we celebrate things from our natural and ethnic cultures. That's no accident. That's God's providence. And there's blessing in that. But it is not primary or foundational to who we are. This is why the, Paul, the Apostle Paul could say strange things, like in his letter to, to 1 Corinthians. He could say things like, to the Jew I became as a Jew. He's like, wait a minute, Paul, you, you were Jewish. You're Hebrew of the Hebrews. But he can put that on and take that off in service to the gospel because in Christ, he's a new creation. 
He said, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. To one under the law, I became like one under the law. To one who was not under the law, I became like them, though not to sin. How is that possible except that he has a radical and new identity rooted not in the nations of the world, but rooted in this new nation called the church? So we are. And here's the third thing. In giving him a new identity, God gives him a new identity then that is defined by his law, by his word. You see it there in verses 4 and 5? You shall follow my rules and my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Three times he, he backs this up with his own authority, with his own identity. I am the Lord. I am God alone. I am ruler of your life. You're sovereign. Don't obey others. Obey me. And this way, the law would become Israel's constitution. The Torah was their cultural mandate. God would be their Lord, ruling them by his word, not by cultural fads and opinions. They would be a, a, a people, a culture that were word-based. Everything about their life was to be determined by the fact that God was their God and God's word was their guide. That was how they were to be new. That was how they were to be holy and distinct from the other peoples of the world. And notice here how God repeatedly joins who he is with his word. We cannot know God well without knowing his word well. We cannot serve God well without obeying his word well. God's person comes through us to us through God's word. We get more of God by obeying more of God's word. So God here is giving Israel a new identity, right? At the formation of them as a nation. He's got to get their identity right before he can make them distinct or holy. Most of Israel's problems will be caused by forgetting who they are in relation to God or who they are in relation to the world, or who they are in relation to God's word. And don't most of our problems begin the same way? Forgetting who we are in relation to God, or to the world, or to his word? When I went to freshman orientation in college, for college, about the time Leviticus was, was written, <laughs> We used to have something called um, African-American Symposium. We'd bring African-American students in a day or two before the, the main orientation and would try to orient uh, African-American students, many of them uh, first-time uh, college attendees in their families, like myself, would try and orient them to the campus and to each other uh, to get them sort of started and acclimated for the university life. And uh, we had a couple of um, deans and provosts on the campus, African-American men, Dr. Lawrence Clark and Dr. Gus Witherspoon, um, legends in North Carolina and at this institution. They used to do a, a presentation called, Who Am I? It's a slideshow presentation. Back when you had the little slides and you had a little carousel and click carousel turn. It was this hour and a half sort of tour of African and African-American history. Trying to answer the question for students who were coming with indefinite ideas about who they were. That basic question, who am I? And beloved, it's one of the most fundamental questions we have to answer in life, isn't it? 
Who, who am I? And so I ask you this morning, who, who are you? Who are you this morning? That determines our, our standing in the world. It, it defines our relationship to God and to cultures. If, if we don't answer that question, we will be lost. And, it, and if we answer it incorrectly, we're going to be inconsistent with who we truly are. But if we get it right, it will determine and define and direct the course of our entire lives. And so I, I want to ask you this morning, if there's something that's been on your heart, something that's been on your mind, something that's been troubling you, something that perhaps you haven't been able to solve or figure out or get through, perhaps for some time, I want to ask you this morning, if your struggle with that might at least in part be connected to a poor answer to that question, who am I? Who am I in relationship to God, in relationship to his church and the world? in relationship to his word. It might be that answering that well is the path to freedom for you. It was for Israel as God is forming them into a nation. But now he's also got to define their families. It brings us to our second point, verses 6 to 23, the sort of bulk of the chapter. And you might ask yourself the question, what is what is Family definition have to do with nation building. Well, lots of people all across the spectrum, Christians, non-Christians, atheists, even Confucius, have thought about this connection. And so let me give you just a couple of quotes as we think about this point. The first one is from Dr. Tony Evans. He says, the saga of a nation is the saga of its families writ large. And whoever owns the family owns the future. George Bernard Shaw, no friend of Christianity for most of his life, says this, a happy family is but an earlier version of heaven. Alex Haley, author of Roots, says this, in every conceivable manner, the family is linked to our past, bridged to our future. And Confucius, it's maybe the only time I've ever quoted Confucius, but he's right on this. He says, to put the world right in order, we must first put the nation in order. To put the nation in order, we must first put the family in order. To put the family in order, we must first cultivate our personal life. We must first set our hearts right. Nearly everyone recognizes the importance of the family to the building and health of a nation or people, but the Lord understood that better and before anybody else. That's why so much attention over these next four chapters of Leviticus is going to be given to the formation of families in Israel. When, when you want to build a holy nation, you have to begin by building holy families. And this is what we're going to see in all these commands, verses 6 to 23. Let's start with the core principle in verse 6. It says, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. Basically, this is a command against incest. A new family cannot be made from an existing family. The word approach is a euphemism for sexual relations. I love how the Bible always blushes when it talks about sexuality. It's never crude or carnal. It's never vulgar. It always talks about this intimate, beautiful aspect of our lives with, with choice, beautiful words. 
our culture can learn something about that. So since family formation depends on sexual relations, close relatives cannot be approached for making a family. Now, this may raise a question for you. As you if you know your Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you may be thinking about all these examples in the Old Testament that where that seems not to have been obeyed, all right? Beginning with the first family. Like, well, if Adam and Eve were the only people around, and they, where, did, where did the wives from their children come from? Well, the only answer to that, Genesis 4, 17, 26, Genesis 5, verse 4, is siblings. At a point in time where God was initially establishing the world. Well, you come down a little bit further to Genesis chapter 19, and you can maybe remember the story of Lot's daughters taking advantage of him when he was drunk, and they had children by their father. Or you think about Abraham, who married his half-sister, Sarah, Genesis chapter 20. Jacob married Rachel and her sister, Leah, Genesis 29. Judah was seduced by his daughter-in-law, and they had a child. Reuben committed adultery with Jacob's concubine, his father's concubine, Bilhah. So you read Genesis, it's ratchet. It's ratchet. It's life as it really is. But now all of these situations happened in what's called the primordial history, uh, Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 10, or during the patriarchs, Genesis chapter 11 to chapter 50. The patriarchs lived in pagan lands. They were not yet the people of God. Promises had been made to individuals, but they were not yet a nation. And so they were navigating through the world, through all of these pagan and idolatrous lands and peoples, often doing or dealing with what pagans do. But now, again, remembering the historical context, God has made them a whole nation. He has delivered them from, Israel, from slavery in Egypt, and now he's about to form them. He's about to give them their own culture. And, and so one of the things to understand about the Bible is that as it progresses across history, God progressively gives more truth. That's called the doctrine of progressive revelation. So now we've reached a point in Israel's history where God is giving them the law and now he's helping them to understand even that history in Genesis in light of what really is holy. He does two things. In verses 7 to 18, he gives them laws protecting the family. And in verses 19 to 23, he gives them laws protecting sexuality itself. Right. So these laws protecting the family, he starts with uh, family related by blood. Right. So verse seven, he says, you cannot uncover the nakedness of your mother. Verse eight, you can't uncover the nakedness of your stepmother. Verse nine, you can't uncover the nakedness of your sister. Verse 10, you cannot uncover the nakedness of your granddaughter, whether it's maternal or paternal granddaughter. Uh, verse 11, you cannot uncover the nakedness of your stepsister. These are close family. Don't do it. Then he talks about how people are related through their parents. So verse 12, he talks about the paternal aunt, aunt on your daddy's side. Verse 13, he talks about your aunt on, the, on your mama's side. You can't uncover their nakedness. Verse 14, you can't uncover your uncle's wife, right? Your aunt through marriage. And then he comes to relate, being related through marriage, verses 15 to 17. You can't uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law or your sister-in-law in verse 16 or of a woman and her daughter or granddaughter 
Verse 17, this is your family. You don't do this with family. So verse 17 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. Verse 18, a woman and her sister. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. So in these ways, God is protecting the integrity and the nature of marriage and family by defining who is and who is not appropriate marriage partners. Then he begins to protect sexuality itself. And and in verses 19 to 23, he gives sort of five laws here that, that protect sexuality from pollution and from perversion. So chapter 18, verse 19, the pollution of the menstrual cycle. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. We saw that in earlier chapters where God was teaching them clean and unclean. Verse 20, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. So in both cases, he is addressing these sins, which make something clean, sex and sexuality, unclean by their profanation. Then he gives us three things that actually pervert the nature of sex. Verse 21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So he's saying there, hey, you cannot worship foreign gods like Molech and in the process give your children in service to those gods. Now, we don't know entirely what was in view there. It could have been literal sacrifice uh, of those children or it could have been involving those children in something that was sexually uh, illicit and inappropriate. Could have been a number of things. But in any case, the seed of uh, the family, of the relationship, the offspring of this interaction, which should have been devoted to God, is being devoted to a false God. And he would say later, that profanes my name. Or, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And so he's here addressing homosexuality and how that perverts the design of male and female in conjugal relationship. Um, as God intended. And number five, bestiality. You shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. So God is here helping them to understand both the nature of family and the nature of the sexual relationship that belongs in family. The miracle of marriage and family is that two unrelated people enter into a bond that's stronger than the blood relationship. Remember the words of Genesis 2.25. A man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one. He shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That miracle should not and cannot happen between close relatives. And that miracle actually protects, or it ought to, the integrity and the intimacy of the sexual relationship. So from the commands, from verse 6 down to 23, we can infer a couple of positive principles regarding marriage and family and sexuality. Here's one. Number one, 
that marriage and family are about a healthy belonging together. It's about a healthy belonging. Consider the repeated references to the, the possessive pronouns, her and his. The spouse or child is, the, is his daughter or her spouse or her husband. Repeated to the fathers or mothers or sons or daughters. That possessive language is a kind of godly owning, belonging together. Not a sinful, selfish, jealous owning, which perverts love, but a healthy, godly right belonging to each other and owning of each other in that way. That's why we say, this is my wife, or this is my husband. We've entered into a relationship of mutual ownership. And, and family creates that, not just between the spouses, but with the children and the grandchildren, with aunts and uncles, et cetera. There is a belonging that is dear to what we do when we form family. Here's the second thing, that, that marriage and family involves a covered nakedness, a covered nakedness. Again, this is the Bible's euphemism for sexual intimacy. The Bible's still blushing when it talks about uncovering nakedness. It's using poetry there to help us understand something. Covered nakedness is a poetic way of capturing two important principles for marriage and for marital sexuality. Covered or uncovered captures the privacy and the mutual ownership of a husband and wife. So in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says this, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now again, he's not talking about a sinful, a sinful selfish possessiveness here, but an act of self-giving that is essential to healthy marriage and healthy intimacy. A, a mutual belonging each to the other that we might experience this one flesh union the way God intended. Now, when it comes to the rest of the world, there's meant to be between the husband and the wife a kind of modesty, a, a coveredness, a protectiveness, that keeps what they share exclusive to them and out of the sight and the view of the rest of the world. That coveredness, it shelters, it protects, it hides the body from the viewing of others. And it keeps the body for the viewing of one, the spouse. That's the covered part of this, but the nakedness part of this now captures something else. It captures the, the freedom and vulnerability and acceptance that should be shared between a husband and wife in a healthy marriage. In a, in a healthy marriage, the husband and wife should experience what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden before the fall. I, I misquoted Genesis 2.25 earlier. This is Genesis 2.25 when it says that the two shall be naked and unashamed. That's what they were before sin entered the world. Naked and unashamed transparent, vulnerable, open, and not in any way insecure or afraid or in jeopardy. 
So marriage is this relationship, and, and intimacy in marriage is this relationship where facing each other, the husband and the wife, are meant to be revealed to each other. But facing the world, the husband and wife are meant to be concealed from the, from the world. Uncovering that intimacy and that vulnerability for the eyes of others is wrong. It's morally wrong. God does not like it. Covering it is right. It's pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Some of you are probably already thinking of a wonderful passage that illustrates this. Um, Genesis chapter 9 with Noah and his sons. It's after the flood. Uh, Noah and his sons and their wives have come out of the ark. The text says there that Noah has dedicated himself to the ground. He's become kind of a, a farmer, a husbandman, and uh, he has raised uh, grapes. And he has discovered that grapes is good for wine. And he is partaking. And he partakes a bit much, and he gets drunk, and he, he passes out in his, in his tent naked. One son comes and sees his nakedness and mocks him. But I want you to see what happens in, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 to 23. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent, verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Noah's sons show us how to honor the human body and to honor privacy and to honor intimacy. We cover it. We dignify it. We protect it from sight. We don't even use our own sight when we are covering it and protecting it. We walk backwards, as it were. The great lie of our culture is that nakedness and sex are power and freedom. Supposedly, the less you wear and the more you reveal, then the more in control and comfortable you are with your body. The more you display your sexual autonomy, the freer you are, the world tells us. But is that true? It seems to me that the people who are most often naked are the ones who are most often exploited. And the ones who are most often sexually profligate are the ones who are most often sexually exploited, either by themselves or others. Exploitation is not freedom, even when it's self-exploitation. We can be just as enslaved to ourselves in our view of sexuality and the body, as we can be enslaved to the views of others. We live in a highly visual and exhibitionist culture. This culture parades the physical bodies of men and women and teenagers and sometimes even children. And beloved, too many times, language like body positive becomes another term for immodesty and even soft porn instead of a healthy view of our physical selves. Think about it. We might actually have more body positivity if we saw less of each other's bodies. 
we would at least be freer from the comparison trap, wouldn't we? If it wasn't always on display and sold as tantalizing and powerful. But you see how different the culture is from the Bible. And why God says to his people, whether you are coming from Egypt or going to Canaan, you can't take your cues from the culture. You've got to take your cues from the word. Even, even as it relates to what you do with your body and how you regard it. So marriage and family are these relationships of healthy belonging to one another where members of the family protect each other's modesty and privacy by covering each other's bodies. And this is why not doing that is such a profound betrayal. It strikes at the very heart of what God says marriage is and is to do. And this is why recovering from it can be so very difficult. Well, we should move on. Because God not only defines their identity, he not only defines for them um, their family and their sexuality, but finally, God also, notice, defines for them accountability. God judged the nations for these very sins. We see that in verses 24 uh, to the end of the chapter. And in those verses, God warns Israel, hey, look, you can suffer the same judgment if you live the way those other cultures and nations did, the land that I promised to you, well, it's already vomited them out. If you go and live the same way, this land will vomit you out as well. You see, this, this pollution of family and sexuality happens not just to you, but even the land. And, and in this language here, you can, you can almost hear, uh, again, traces of Genesis. Where in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. That's how they were meant to live for all of their lives. But sin enters the world. And, and because of sin, what does God do? He expels them from the garden, doesn't he? And now man is wandering and building cities and trying to find their own way. And, and it's not until God begins to bring Israel to himself and make them a people that he begins to reverse the curse that happened in the garden. Instead of being kicked out, what does he say? I promise you a land. And, and now in the, in, the, in the law, what is he doing? He's teaching them, this is how you be naked and unashamed. He is, as it were, in some ways, restoring Eden. And that project would go on all the way up to Jesus and the church until the new heavens and the new Jerusalem come. When we will finally be not in a garden, but in a city. And we'll be in that city where there is no sin and is no shame where the Lord is the light of that place. And so he's warning them. And, and to prevent this, um, to prevent this pollution, this corruption, he tells them in verse 29, anyone breaking these laws must be cut off. They must be separated from the nation. They must be expelled from the nation. They must be put to death. So, so the community now is being given standards for accountability so they might remove sin and remain holy. And the penalties for breaking these laws is really what gets spelled out in chapter 20. So if you look over chapter 20 with me, we're going to take a quick stroll uh, through those verses there. Because the chapters almost parallel to chapter 18. Notice now he starts in chapter 20 with the issue with Molech, verses 1 to 5. And he says very clearly, the one who gives their child to Molech uh, in false worship 
they not only profane themselves and profane um, the child, but they profane his temple and profane his name. And for that, they are to be put to death. They profane the name of the Lord when they are supposed to be his holy nation. And notice what he says. And those who stand by that person or turn a blind eye to that person who sacrifices to Molech, those people too will be cut off. So he's calling the entire community to take an active posture against immorality and idolatry. Notice in verses 6 and 7, he turns to the issue of, of the occult, to necromancy and things of that sort. Again, in verse 27, the very last verse of the chapter, he, he repeats it there. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. And they are guilty of this sin. The community is called to discipline them with the death penalty. And their blood is on them, not the community. God says in verses 6 and 7 that he will cut them off and that he will turn his face against them. Verse 9, there's a penalty for disobedience to parents. Death. Verses 10 to 16, there are the penalties against incest. Again, death. Verses 17 to 21, there's a penalty for sexual uncleanness. They will be cut off. They will bear their iniquity. And notice now, verses 20 and 21, they shall be childless. In all of this, we see that God judges our sex lives. There's no part of our lives that can be kept private from God's rule and God's scrutiny. As a holy community, Israel must join God in his attitudes and actions against sexual immorality. There's no less true of the church. Here's the irony, beloved. Man makes his body and sex life public, but thinks judgment should be private. The Bible teaches that if we, if we make our bodies and sex lives private, then God will make our righteous judgment public. Like so many things, the world gets it precisely backwards. Now, why the death penalty in the Old Testament? Well, we've already remarked earlier in Leviticus that um, there is no sacrifice in the Old Testament in the Old Testament system, for intentional sins. And here's the other lie we got to get rid of, beloved. Sexual sin doesn't just happen. It's never just happened. It takes a whole lot of decisions, a whole lot of promises, a whole lot of lies to make your way to just happen. It's an intentional sin. And in the Old Testament, there's no sacrifice for it. So what's left in God's mercy, really, is not to allow that person to continue in sin, but to bring that person to account in judgment. But what about the New Testament? So many places we could look at, but turn with me real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. There the Apostle Paul writes this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It says a little bit later in verse 13, 
The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. I think the Apostle Paul would have liked that traditional hymn we just sang a moment ago. My body belongs to God. But notice verse 11. This is where the news gets good. Just describe all these people and their sins. And he says, and such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. How did that happen? How did we go from the Old Testament having no sacrifice for intentional sin and people committing sexual morality being put to death and the New Testament, including a verse like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says, not you should die, but such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been cleansed, you have been justified. What, what produces that change? It's the life and death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the sacrifice even for intentional sins. He is the sacrifice for truly unintentional sins. He is the sacrifice for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And where the blood of bulls and goats was only symbolic, the blood of the Son of God was real in its power to cleanse us and to heal us and to justify us. So that we can be a people now who don't glory in our sin, but we do glory that God has delivered us from our past. Such were some of us. Aren't we a room full of swindlers and liars and cheats? Aren't we a room full of sexually immoral people and all those things? Oh, I know your sin might not be my sin, but I know you got sin. And I know you need a savior just like I needed a savior. I know you need to be cleansed just like I need to be cleansed. I know you need to be justified with God the same way I need to be justified with God. I know that you know that I know that God knows that you can't do it yourself. I couldn't do it myself. That's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus coming is such fantastic news. For he is the one whose blood pays it all. It is good news. It's the best news, beloved. And so if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you can be right now. And if it sounds too good to be true that all of your sins can be forgiven and washed away, I'm sorry it sounds that way to you, but it is true. And you're in a room full of people who have experienced it. The forgiveness of God, the cleansing of the conscience, the freedom from sin, and the freedom to serve God as our God and to know his love and never be separated from it, to be defined by it. So we, we want your identity. We exist as a church so that your identity would not be I'm a Smith, I'm a Johnson, I'm Anya Buile or whatever, or not be I'm an African-American or Asian-American or, or I'm from Europe. Okay, cool. We exist for something better, that you would be known to be a child of God, loved by him, adopted by him, and you would be known to be part of his holy people, washed by the blood of his son, set apart for his glory. 
But that's what God wants you to be. God wants your best, and your best is him and all that he gives through Jesus' son. So this morning, if you're not a Christian, put your faith in Jesus. Confess your sins. Confess the, the wrongness that you've done with your body. Confess the wrong ways you viewed the bodies of others. Confess your sins and ask God for forgiveness. He won't be stingy with forgiveness. He won't be stingy with love. He will pour it out to you by his spirit right into your heart. Call out to him and be saved. And Christian, this this text, of course, means there are applications for us from Leviticus 20 and 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. While you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let me just read two other verses, three other verses, verses 18 to 20. These are our applications this morning. It says very simply, free from sex, flee, excuse me, flee from sexual immorality. Run from it like Joseph in Potiphar's house. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. But do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's straightforward, isn't it? Run from every form of sexual immorality, from premarital sex, to extramarital sex, adultery, to pornography, from coarse joking. Run from every form of sex, uh, sexual immorality. Run from voyeurism. Run from thirst traps on Instagram. Run from it all. Let this shape your entertainment choices. Make a covenant with your eyes not to look on any unclean thing or to look on any clean thing unclean. Flee from it. Let's be a community that runs from sexual immorality and runs to purity and holiness. And notice what it says. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. So, So we need a good theology of the physical body. This thing we live in is precious. Not only do we live in it, but God by his spirit lives in it. And so we need a good theology of of the body, of the embodied life, so that we aren't doing things with our body as if it doesn't matter spiritually. It does. Go back to the embodied series that we preached at the beginning of the pandemic or or read great books on on embodiment. Preston Sprinkle has a a wonderful one applied particularly to, to sexuality. Let's develop a good theology there and glorify God in our bodies which is really what Exodus is pointing to as it calls us to holiness. Let me just read three verses from Exodus 18 and 20, where God says, be holy. Exodus 18, verse 30. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. Exodus 20, verses seven and eight consecrate yourselves, that means to set yourself aside as holy, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Leviticus 20, verses 23 to 26. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. 
But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. Verse 26, you shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. That's our charge. To consecrate ourselves while God sanctifies us to separate ourselves from the world so that we might demonstrate that the Lord, he is Lord, and he's our Lord, and we are his people. Being holy is perhaps the greatest goal, mission, that we can have as the people of God because it's how we reflect that we are like him, for he is holy. Never think lightly of it. Let's give ourselves entirely to it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for Leviticus 18 and 20. We thank you for how it readies us for Jesus. For we are, Lord, so many fallen people. Fallen into sin. Fallen into shame. And we have at times loved it been excited by it, felt that we could not live without it. But in the fullness of time, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world, born of a virgin, born under the law, to fulfill the requirements of the law for us and to die and suffer the penalty of the law in our place. He died when we should have. And you raised him from the grave that we might have life. And we pray now that you would give us grace to live this life, not for ourselves, O oh Lord, not for the fleeting pleasures of sin, but like Moses, we might choose to identify with you and to identify with your people, and we might live for your holiness and your glory. Help us to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Your word says sexual immorality should not even be named among us. Help us to take such an attitude toward it. And grant that we would have compassion and love and courage to walk with those who struggle, but also to practice accountability and discipline. Help us to be humble enough to know that there are some changes in the human heart that all of our walking together cannot produce, but only you can, by your word and your spirit. Help us to give those cases over to you for the healing of the heart and for the glory of the Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.